so we've been studying Micah for a couple of weeks. This is our third week out of four in the book. Um, Micah, an Old Testament prophet, writing uh, in the time when the nation of Israel was split in two, uh, quite a while after the time of King David and, and those guys. Um, the people are worshiping false idols, false gods. They're also hurting one another, so they're getting it wrong with God. They're getting it wrong with each other as well. Uh, and no one's getting it more wrong than the nation's leaders. Uh, they're really um, hurting people. Micah's heartbroken. He's angry. And chapter 3, verse 8, was it? He said he's full of the power of, of, of power and of God's Spirit to call them out. Uh, and now he brings a word of deliverance from God in uh, chapter 4 and 5, which we're going to read. But it's deliverance that's going to come through disaster. Uh, there's going to be pain uh, in this uh, reshaping process and, and remolding process. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 7 from last week promised this, this bright future. Uh, but it is through, through pain and through disaster that they're, they're going to get to that. So let's catch the tail end of that promise of a bright future. We're going to read from chapter 4, verse 6 uh, through to the end of chapter 5. So let's, uh, let's do that. So in that day, that future, uh, future day, um, that bright future, in that day declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant those driven away, a strong nation, the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Uh, as for you, O watchtower of the flock, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the people of God, in other words, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And then we're going to get a series of... Uh, of little verses, if you like, which, which predict the, the downfall, but the lifting up, the bringing low and the lifting up. So um, verse 9, why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. He who gathers them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will give you horns of iron, I will give you hoofs of bronze, and you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Again, another down and then up again in chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. 
He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Uh, then we get a, a, a section which describes the victory of this ruler who is coming. So from verse 5, when the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Uh, this is difficult uh, material, but it is God's word, and it will speak to us uh, today, and we trust him for that. Um, I wonder if you are a creative sort of person, uh, maybe good with your hands, good with an idea. Are you the sort of person who can take what someone else might think to be scrap and turn it into something beautiful or something useful? Uh, you know, reduce, reuse, and recycle. That's the modern mantra, isn't it? And, and rightly so. There is a finite amount of, of raw material. Uh, making things costs time and money and effort and energy. And maybe you're the sort of person who knows how to take, I don't know, the end of odd candles and, and melt them down into a new candle. Or you repurpose your old egg boxes to be planters for seeds for the summer. Or you thought about buying a bird feeder and then you saw something around the house you could use to make uh, one uh, from. Uh, in, the, you know, in other industries, this is happening all the time. In the auto industry, you can take an old car batteries and you can take the lead uh, and reforge that into new battery plates. You can take the plastic casing and melt that down and make new casings. You can take the acid and convert it into, I don't know, stuff that's used for um, detergent, I think it is. Um, so all the time, things are being uh, destroyed to be remade. And that's really what's going on in Micah chapters 4 and 5. And the heavenly vision of Micah chapter 4 in the verses we covered last week, we saw a glimpse uh, of, of this kind of repurposing. We saw God establishing his rule and his peace so that uh, nations who were previously at war would come together and, and beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I'm not a farmer. Maybe you're not either. Uh, but in other words, the weapons of war were being repurposed as the tools of agriculture. And items that were made to destroy were converted into those uh, fueling prosperity. But for this heavenly vision to become a reality, God must start by repurposing and recasting his own people. Like the weapons of war, the people themselves are at each other's throats. 
with exploitation and injustice running rampant. They need to be remade. Uh, Sin has corrupted all of us. We all need to be remade, recreated, renewed. Um, For that, God's people need to be broken apart. They need to be melted down under intense heat and pressure, and only then can they be reforged and restored. And I think we'll see uh, that it's the same for us. Our fallen human allegiance to uh, sin needs to be broken and replaced with an allegiance to God's King. And our fallen human reliance on ourselves needs to be broken and replaced with a new reliance on God's Savior. Um, God's people need a new Savior and a new King. We need a new Savior and a new King. Uh, And so let's get into Micah 4 and 5, and we'll see uh, there that first... And to save us, God must first break our rebellion. God breaks our rebellion. So to save us, God must first bring us low and break our reliance on self and our allegiance to sin. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, we have this heavenly vision of a future of God's people, but future blessing from God and with God does not fit with the anti-God way that people are living. How could those two things be together? If they're against God, how can they be with God and blessed by him? They're supposed to love God, but the land is full of idol worship. They're supposed to love one another, but the land is full of injustice. They're getting it wrong in both directions, towards God and towards each other. Uh, They're in full-on rebellion uh, against, against God. But in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, God promises to make the lame a remnant. In other words, He promises to wound God's people and then bring them back to true spiritual health. Uh, And the word for lame is an unusual word, and it echoes back to the time, remember, when Jacob, Jacob himself, you know, the the father of of all Israel, the father of the Israelites, he wrestled with God. Do you remember that? Overnight, he wrestled with God, and he was left with this limp, and he apparently limped uh, for the rest of his life. He wrestled with God, learning through the pain and the struggle to cling to God and to submit to God for blessing. And now his descendants are going to go toe-to-toe with God. They're going to wrestle with him, and that's going to hurt. God will break their resistance and their rebellion, but that's the road to rescue and restoration. Uh, we must be melted down before we can be recast. And in chapter 4, verse 8, they will be recast and remade restored but even though the nation is going to be brought low and conquered, there will still be a king. The royal line will just about survive. So God's important promises on that score, his eternal promises that a, a king from David would reign over his people forever, those promises are not going to be broken. The disaster is going to come, but that doesn't mean complete uh, and utter uh, ending of, of God's promises. So chapter 4, verse 8, there'll still be a king. The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So generations along, uh, on the other side of this disaster that God's bringing, there will still be uh, a king. Um, and so God's people are going to be remade, but first they will be broken. And verses 8 to 13 describe how that's going to happen. Um, after the attacks from Assyria, Uh, Judah will later be conquered by and exiled in Babylon. Uh, But from there, God will rescue and restore his people, bringing them back to their land. And so in verses 9 and 10, there's this cycle of being melted down and then remade. And in 11 to 13, another cycle, melted down and then remade. Disaster and then deliverance. Uh, So in, in chapter 4, verse 9, the people are crying out. 
They had put all their faith in kings and defenses and strategies, and now they are helpless against what's coming, uh, like, a, like a woman is helpless going into labor. The, the pain is, is overwhelming, and it, it's inescapable. There's no avoiding it. You can't just take a different track. Um, but it is temporary, and it does lead to blessing and joy later on. Verse 10, they're going into exile, dragged from their home to go a thousand miles off to Babylon into the heart of enemy territory. Uh, and that happened later on, happened in uh, 586 BC. Um, you can find out all about it in uh, all sorts of museums <laughs> as well as in the Bible. Um, but in verse 10, there you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. There, of all places, you'll finally see God's blessing melted down and then remade, disaster and then deliverance. Again, from verse 11, the vultures are circling, aren't they, in verse 11? Assyria would lay siege to Jerusalem in 701 BC. You can see there's a long time frame in, in God's plan here. And Assyria is kind of circling, desperate to defile the temple and pour scorn on the people, desperate to prove, in other words, that they've defeated the God of Israel, bringing their armies. If they can sack the temple, well, then their army is stronger than Israel's God. But verse 12, God is laying a trap for the wicked and proud nations of the world. Yes, he's using their evil and their pride to achieve his correction in his people, in their hearts. But he's still going to hold those nations to account for their cruelty. Um, so verse 12, God is gathering them like a harvest that's ready to be threshed and crushed and ground and you get this picture of this ox with the horns and the hoofs and this kind of like this super kind of cyborg ox that's kind of grinding this, this grain and threshing it and crushing it. And God did destroy the Assyrian army in the siege of Jerusalem, not using any strength of Israel, but God would bring his judgment on Assyria and then later on Babylon. But the point is anyway that there's disaster and then there's deliverance. There's melting down and then there's remaking, reforging. To save us, God must first bring us low and break our reliance on self and our allegiance to sin. And I think that's what, what's going on as well in verses uh, 10 to 15 of chapter 5. If you flick over to that, if you've got it, uh, verses 10 to 15 of chapter 5, God will break down everything that his people are relying on when they should be relying on him. So verse 10, they might rely on their military. But verse 10, in that day, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. God's not anti-horse. It's just he's anti-military when they should be relying on him. They might rely on their defenses, but verse 11, I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. They might rely on some clever skills, but verse 12, I'll destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. They might rely on false gods and idols, but verse 13, I will destroy your carved images, your sacred stones. You're not going to bow down to the work of your hands. Why would you bow down to stuff that you've made? I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. To save us and to make us compatible with that heavenly vision of chapter 4, where we are with God and for God and blessed by God, God must first bring us low and break our reliance on self and our allegiance to sin. And God does this when we first come to him in Christ. His spirit convicts us of our sin, of our need for a savior. Um, and we run to him. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask for new life and a fresh start and a new hope and a new future. And God does this at times 
in our walk with him as well, uh, breaking down uh, lingering defenses that we have, exposing weaknesses, loosening our lingering loyalty to sin. And these can be painful experiences and troubling times, uh, and they feel like being melted down. But what we are in our sinful nature simply will not do. We are not uh, left to ourselves. We are not fit for God's kingdom. Not if we're dead set against it. How could we be in it if we're against it? Uh, not when we're holding out pockets of resistance to us, to it. And sometimes God will use pain and trouble and weakness and vulnerability to melt us down so that we can be reforged for him, trusting him uh, and living for him. And if you're not a Christian, this is the process that is needed in our mind, in, in, in your affection, in your will, in your life. Uh, you need God to bring you low, to expose the deep unpleasantness of, of a self-centered life, uh, a life of um, uh, of worshiping other things, whatever you fancy, of, of perhaps hurting other people. Uh, God will bring us low. And sometimes even in our walk with him, there are other uh, rough edges in us that need to be chipped off and chiseled off. There is pruning to be done, if you want to gather all the metaphors. <laughs> There's pruning to be done, correcting, training, uh, redirecting. And these may be deeply painful experiences. Uh, but like childbirth, that pain is temporary. And it's necessary uh, to reach the blessing and the joy of new life. We might be deeply hurt by the surgeon's knife. I don't know if you've had surgery in your life. You might be deeply hurt by the knife of the surgeon. Take weeks to recover. But he is cutting out a cancer of sin, incising the, an infection that left to grow will kill us. Has God brought you low? Is he bringing you low now in some season of your life? He must break our rebellion if we're to be remade for him and for his kingdom. Trust him, submit to him, let him work. Pray that he would remake you. So to save us, God breaks our rebellion. Move a little faster, I think, in the next one. Uh, God gives us a new king. So this flows out of the first idea like this, okay? God brings us low so that he can build us up. He breaks our reliance on self and sets our reliance on his savior. That's kind of the first idea. And now he breaks our allegiance to sin and sets our allegiance on his king. So we need a savior. That was point one. We need a king. That's point two. We need to go from relying on ourselves and to, rely, uh, to relying on our savior and from committing to our sin to committing to our king. Okay. Medical science is, is incredible, isn't it? I was reading a note just recently about heart transplants. If you have a heart problem that just cannot be addressed and managed by medications and other, other in, in, in interventions, it is possible in this day and age to have a heart transplant, uh, to have your heart removed and replaced by a heart from a, a suitable donor. And apparently with the right care afterwards, your chances uh, of decent health are pretty good. I'm surprised enough to read. <laughs> Um, and you get all the super emotional stories, don't you, of, you know, um, someone who's received a donor's heart going to meet the donor's family, and they can put their ear to the, to the chest and hear the heart of their loved one still beating, still giving life uh, to someone who, who so desperately needed it. It's incredible. And we're talking about something like that today. We're talking about pain, but we're talking about a good, good thing. God cutting out a dead heart and donating to us a, a healthy, life-giving heart in its place. Of course, the surgery is painful. Of course, it, it feels awful. But the result is life and hope and health. 
And so as before, chapter 5 opens with the same pattern of disaster and then deliverance. The old heart cut out and the new one transplanted in. So God's crumbling people are being remade, uh, sorry, being melted down and then remade. So verse 5, or chapter 5 rather, starts with a, on the downward slope, doesn't it? Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Disaster's coming. Jerusalem is laid siege in 701 BC. Assyria kind of washed in like this great flood right up to the walls of the capital, kind of captured every village and every town right up to the walls of Jerusalem. All of Israel's reliance on defenses and troops came to nothing. It was useless. It was like a humiliating slap in the face for the king. Verse 1, they'll strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. How embarrassing when you've spent years building your defenses and the Assyrians have just washed right up to your front door as if they weren't even there. But God has promised that he will put his king in place to rule forever. And so verse 2, you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah is like the region around Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, uh, from ancient times. So this isn't just any king. It's not just you'll have some sort of second-rate king. This is a king in the tribe of David, born in the town of King David, to be the new King David. But he's clearly, obviously, more than David as well. This is someone from ancient times, from before David. This is the Messiah, the Christ, God's eternal king, not just a king who points back to the good old days of King David, but one to whom David himself pointed, one for whom King David was just a warm-up act. I don't know if you've been to any uh, concerts uh, recently since the pandemic ended. Uh, quite often you go to a gig, there's a, there's a warm-up act, isn't there? And maybe you struggle to remember, even you know, by the time you're going home, who that even was. What was the name? Don't know. And if you didn't buy something with their name on it, you've no idea. But sometimes you get this warm-up act, and sometimes they're really great. King David, they thought, was the absolute pinnacle. Turns out he's just the warm-up. He's just the warm-up for this Messiah, this king. And so verse 3, Israel's going through this time of melting before being reforged under this Messiah. And verse 4, this Messiah, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Those two verses it's like exactly the opposite of what God's people are going through. They, they are so weak, and the ends of the earth have washed right up to their front door. Their greatness, the greatness of the nations, is against them, and their leaders are not shepherding the flock. They're, they're fleecing the flock. Uh, but the, this Messiah, there'll be something completely different with him. And we know, of course, that this is pointing forward towards Jesus. Verses 2 and 3 are familiar to our ears because of the Christmas story of the wise men. Didn't they come and ask King Herod, where is this uh, king going to be born, this king of the Jews? These wise men have been following his, his star and have come to worship him. Herod is disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And he asks the priests and, and teachers of the law where the Messiah was to be born. And they say, Matthew chapter 2, in Bethlehem in Judea, for the prophet said, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. So they knew Micah, didn't they? I think that's the only place really that Micah is directly quoted in the New Testament. But they knew 
that from Bethlehem this special king was going to come. So in the new Jerusalem, a new Messiah, a new king is going to be born nearby in Bethlehem in the line of David, from the town of David, and he's going to rule over the restored people of God. God is going to break his people. He's going to break their rebellion and then give them a new true eternal king, one who doesn't lead them astray, uh, but shepherds them in peace and in security, and above all, in the name of and for the glory of God. Now, staring down the barrel of Babylon, being conquered and exiled, the people of Micah's time might have struggled to see this as good news. It's like standing, I don't know if you've ever done something like this, standing on a hill and you're kind of staring across the valley, and you know that the other hill over there is where you want to be. It's where the path is going next. Uh, But, you know, between you and over there is this deep, dark valley. Um, uh, You're kind of standing, staring over it. And there's, uh, on the other side of the valley, there's a brutal climb up the hill. And you think, oh, goodness, my power to weight ratio is all wrong. I'm far too heavy for this climbing, uh, this climbing business. I was, I drove through, um, I drove up the Glendalough Pass yesterday. And there are people on bikes going up that hill. And I do not know how they do it, but they're kind of, you know, just on the bike, just going back and forth, and the sweat's kind of dripping off them. Actually, to be honest, a lot of them, the sweat's not dripping off them. It's really annoying. They look absolutely fine, and they're going up this hill, and they're kind of, you know, and they're going so slowly. I just think, man, how many times, I said to Steph, how many times would I kind of try that? If I just decided today to try it, how far would I get before I had to just turn and freewheel back down? How many times would I get before I would get over the top and down the other side, that, that kind of, it's, it's, it's horrible looking up that climb and thinking, that's what I've got to try and do. It's going to be painful. And that's what's happening with God's people. They've got a lot ahead of them, and it's going to be so painful, but it's good news. It's brilliant news. In chapter 3, Micah said that the influence of the leaders of God's people was like being tortured. It's like they were eating their own people alive, piece by piece, like the worst of what their enemies could do. And now here comes a leader who is truly good and just and strong and pure and kind and generous and more. There were elections up north recently, and one of the, um, uh, one of the features of elections in Northern Ireland at the moment is that the people can elect representatives, but that doesn't mean they get a government. <laughs> Um, it doesn't mean that a government forms and, you know, tackles the issues of the day and makes progress and serves the people. Um, that's about all I'm going to say because I don't want to be political. Uh, but in our own lives, in all sorts of ways, we might have been overlooked or outcast or held back or pinned down or shut out or denied or just not served, just really poorly served by, by others and people in charge. And every single one of us is being eaten alive by our allegiance to the master that is sin and self. That, uh, that allegiance uh, to sin and self eats us alive. It promises everything, and it breaks every promise. It delivers nothing good and delivers everything bad. But in Jesus, we have a new king and a new allegiance, someone who loves us, who serves us, who helps us, who blesses us, who leads us, who sticks with us, and who brings us home. It's great news. He is great news. God gives us a wonderful new king. And then finally, God uses us 
in his service. God brings us low, and he breaks our reliance on ourselves, so we rely on his Savior. He brings us low, and he breaks our allegiance to sin, and so we pledge ourselves instead to his King. And so once we are melted down and reforged, we become useful to him in his service as he blesses and confronts the world. So this is particularly chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. And this is really the last more or less the last uh, thing that we're going to look at. Um, Chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. So in in verse 6, the Messiah wins this victory over the enemies of God, who are kind of caricatured as Assyria, given that nickname uh, for all the enemies of God. The Messiah wins victory over them and shares his victory with his people. What does that look like, verses 7 and 8? Well, first of all, uh, the rescued and restored remnant of Israel will be, verse 7, in the midst of many peoples. So not just surrounded by nations, but out there in the nations. The people of God will be spread out in the nations. And this is an especially good uh, picture, uh, description, not of post-exile Israel when they came back from Babylon to the Promised Land, but of us, of God's New Testament people, uh, the people of Jesus, His church, we are in the midst of many peoples. In fact, we are drawn from many peoples, aren't we? This description especially fits the, the church in the New Testament times, our times, because uh, this, it all comes from the victory of this Messiah, this particular shepherd. And so uh, Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sat down to rule as king, one day to be revealed, as all, uh, revealed to all. And now the people of Jesus are in the midst of many nations. And the the people of God spread out in the world have two main influences in the world among the people we meet. And this is verses 7 and 8. So for some, we carry life. So verse 7, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Uh, Spring was a little bit dry this year, wasn't it? A couple of months, it was quite dry, not so much now. Uh, But, you know, after a dry spring, a good wet weekend just gets everything growing, uh, just growing like mad all of a sudden. Suddenly the grass is growing so fast you can almost watch it. There are weeds sprouting from everywhere you don't want weeds sprouting from. Uh, And in the soil of Israel, the dew and the showers brought the moisture needed for seeds and crops to just burst into life. And for some people, as we meet them out in the nation's that we carry the life-giving news of Jesus, like a, like a spring shower. Of course, it's under God's control. It's not ours. So uh, verse 6, we're like, we are like the dew in the showers, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. So it says God's control to bring life. Uh, but we, we carry life. We carry the life-giving water of the gospel. Uh, and God uses that to bring life uh, according to his will. For others, though, verse 8, we carry death. Verse 8, the remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Some people, as they encounter the good news of Jesus through us, they only hear bad news. They hate what they hear. They hear the gospel as a threat to their independence, a threat to expose them, a threat to disrupt and destroy what they are building in their lives. And they don't want any of that. Uh, And, and, you know, it's not just that we're bad at (laughs) sharing the good news. Uh, The apostles themselves had this experience. So 
Uh, Paul wrote in, in 2 Corinthians, if you want to write it down where it is, it's 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 14 to 16. It says, uh, Paul says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. That sounds great. But then he says, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? And we, we echo that, don't we? Goodness, who's equal to this? Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ, but we are either received as the scent of life or the stench of death. And ultimately, verses 9 to 15, God will save his chosen people. He will build his church. He will establish his rule, uh, both among everyone who has come to be desperate for it and on everyone who is dead set against it. I don't know how you feel about being the stench of death. Um, I recently, I'm telling this story. Um, I recently parked the car, okay, I parked the car, and I stepped out, and I was standing beside the car, you know, trying to find change to pay for the pay and display and get a ticket. And um, I was fumbling about in my pocket, and I noticed a bad smell, okay? And it turns out that right beside the car, just on the road, just beside the footpath, just right beside the driver's door, was a, a squashed rat. And it took me a while to recognize that's what it was because really only the tail was identifiable. The rest was very, very flat and had obviously been so for a little while. It wasn't, I, didn't, I didn't squash it. I didn't just step out and squash it. It was there already. Um, and the, the, the smell, it's hard to describe. Uh, it, was, it was something else. It was rotten. And it was right at the driver's door. And so I reckoned I had probably stood on it as I got out of the car. Uh, and so the smell was gonna be on my shoe as well. And in fact, I'll tell you where I was. I was outside Nace Hospital. I was about to go in and see Gordon Baker, uh, who's in there at the moment. I really didn't wanna be carrying the smell of flat rat uh, in to see Gordon and the coronary care ward. Um, uh, bless him, uh, that's not what he needs right now. Uh, thankfully, look, it was a damp day. There were puddles, there was wet grass, and I was able to kind of, you know, do that thing that you have to do when you reckon you might have stood in something. So anyway, I sorted that out, paid for the parking, found Gordon. It's was, it was fine. It's fine. Uh, managed to avoid it getting back into the car. No one wants to be the stench of death, do we? I didn't want to walk in past security in the hospital and for them to go, what, you know, what's, what's this guy carrying? You know, we don't want to be the stench of death. But if we smell of Jesus, we'll be that, but we'll also be the scent of life. We will be the spring showers passing over and causing life to just burst out of the ground. Uh, both are going to happen, and it's God who governs it all. He's the one in control, but we get to serve him and his purposes to build his church and establish his rule and glorify his name. Like the people of, of Micah's day, we get to go from, from idolatry and injustice, from sin and self, uh, from brokenness and, and helplessness, to having a new reliance on God's Savior, having a new allegiance to God's King, having a new purpose in God's service, and having a new future in God's kingdom. Uh, so if you're, if you're resisting Jesus, if you're resisting the idea perhaps of submitting to him to, for the very first time, please know that there is plenty about doing that that is going to be difficult and painful. Uh, the Christ, I think is the Christianity Explored uh, slogan that says, you are more sinful than you ever knew. And there's nothing fun about finding that out. There is so much to be cut out, 
so much that is anti-God, so much that is pro-you. No one likes to be confronted with hard truth about themselves, and you will be if you come to Jesus. You'll be dismantled. You'll be melted down. But He will remake you. He will transform and repurpose and reforge and renew there will be uh, more difficulty and more pain along the way. We go through that as, as followers of Jesus, don't we? We go through times that really stretch our faith, uh, the times that when God loosens our grip on earthly uh, supports so that we grab hold of Him instead. Some of us might be in the riddle, right in the middle of that sort of thing right now, uh, some stretching, trying season where we need to, to put our grip on Him and not on everything else. But God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and in Him we have a new Savior, a new King, a new purpose, and a new future. So let's look to the Lord Jesus and lean on Him in whatever pain and trials come our way. And we can do that, and we finish with this. Uh, We can do that because chapter 5, verse 4, He will stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Why don't we pray, and then we're going to respond to some of these things as we sing. Uh, Let's let's pray. Father, we, we sang and we prayed earlier on today, through each perplexing path of life, our wandering footsteps guide. Give us today our daily bread and for our needs provide. We also sang, O spread your covering wings around till all our wanderings cease, and at our heavenly Father's home we shall arrive in peace. Thank you, Father, that you do not leave us riddled with the cancer of sin. You do not leave us with dead and dying hearts. You operate to save us. You give all our godlessness and selfishness to Jesus so that he could carry it to the death it deserved on the cross. And you raised him from the dead to give us a new savior, a new king, a new purpose, and a new future. Help us at whatever stage uh, we are to surrender ourselves to your purposes and plans, to shape us and fashion us in the likeness of Jesus. Help us to endure painful trials, letting them push us closer to you, not drive us away. And give us the courage to submit to our purpose in your world, the remnant in the midst of the nations, the scent of life or the stench of death. Give us courage to live and to speak for you. And we pray, give us the joy of seeing people breathe in that aroma of Christ and find new life in him. And we ask in his name for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen.